Curtis said, uh, I'm really glad to be here with y'all for the the last time for me, or I mean for the foreseeable future, but it is really good to, to always be here um, Thursday morning, 6 a.m., um, and it's especially good to be in front of y'all speaking, a uh, blessing for me. Um, as you know, my, my wife and I, Michaela, we're moving to, to Kansas City where I'll pursue a Master's of Divinity in, uh, in the biblical languages. And, you know, the, the only other language that I've ever taken was German in high school. And I made a C in it. So, so pray for me. Um, but one of the things, in all honesty, one of the things that I have learned, uh, especially over my time at Get Well, is that if you miss an opportunity to offer encouragement to somebody else, then you haven't kept in step with the Spirit. So, um, <clears throat> and Paul says to never grow weary of doing good, and the author of Hebrews says to exhort one another as long as the day is called today. So, men of Get Well, Sunrise, thank you for how you have poured into me over the years that I've been here. Thank you for imaging Christ to me, for showing me what it means to be a man of God, and teaching me, helping me see what true, genuine prayer looks like. Jonathan gave his testimony uh, to the staff a couple, uh, several weeks ago, and something that he said stuck with me, but he said he only thought he knew how to pray before he came to get well. And I thought that, like, I agreed with that, everything. I don't know if you saw me, but I kind of gave you, gave you a little nod. <laughs> but all that to say, you know, stay the course, seek more and more after Jesus so that you go off course less and less and keep keeping in step with him. <clears throat> so this morning, I did want to share some meditations from what I have learned through kind of walking through the book of Exodus. Um, this coming Monday night, I'm teaching an insight uh, on Exodus, and it's been a lot of, of you know, in-depth Bible study, uh, and it hasn't been, you know, from what I've included, and it hasn't been a lot of devotion. So I wanted to find a way to do that, and here it is. Um, but I wanted to, to share with you how God has shown me how he's brought me to where he has me today and how he's promised uh, to lead me, um, and I've, kind of, I've I've seen how God does that through Exodus, uh, through through looking at it. So a big part of Exodus and Numbers, basically all of Numbers, is re- recording Israel's wilderness wandering. Right, so we can clarify that it's wandering with a purpose. Right, and we may we may ask, you know, what is the wilderness? Right, what is that? And I'd say, obviously, you know, there's the tangible wilderness that might come to mind visually, right? It could be an arid desert, a dangerous jungle, might even be the middle of the ocean. Those things might come to mind, but there also is a spiritual wilderness, right? A spiritual wilderness. And what is that? Well, generalized, I would say it's this. It's anything that you walk through in life that is suffering or doubt or both at the same time. That is a spiritual wilderness that we go through. So when Israel, they go through the wilderness, after leaving Egypt, they endure hunger, they endure thirst, they endure suffering, sickness, they endure doubt. We can go on and on about the things that they endured, right? And they doubt God. They doubt that God can provide for them. 
right? Or perhaps even worse, they knew God could provide for them, but they doubted that he wanted to. So I'm here today to tell you that if you have been set apart in Christ, you've been chosen to walk with Jesus, then the way is through the wilderness. That's the way of following Jesus, is to walk through the wilderness. There's no going under it. There's no going over it, around it. The way is through it. And whatever the wilderness is for you, be it loss or grief or or heartache or, or doubt or any type of suffering, whatever it is, the point is, is that we all walk through it. So we might ask, you know, God, if your intent for me is good, Right, then why would you lead me through the wilderness? Why would you knowingly lead me through something bad that's going to test me, something that's going to make me suffer, something that's going to make me doubt? Right, why on earth would you do that? And I think a good answer for us in Scripture is with Abraham. Right? Why did God test Abraham the way that he did? way that he did. Abraham, go sacrifice your son, your one and only son, the son of the promise, Isaac. Go sacrifice him. Right? And I would, I would submit to you that had God not tested Abraham in that way, he would have never have said and he would have never have believed with everything in him that God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice. He would have never have believed that. And I think Peter and James pick up this idea of suffering. And the New Testament, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then again, James chapter 1 Verses 2 through 4, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? So walking through the wilderness, God sends us there to strengthen our faith, right? God allows suffering to exist in his world, right? And I don't, I don't stand here before you, you know, saying that I offer you a, an airtight reason for why God allows you know, suffering and doubt to persist in his creation. I don't, I don't even pretend to offer you a good one. But I will tell you this, that if, there, if suffering did not exist in this world, then we would have absolutely no reason whatsoever to look outside of ourselves to another and their suffering or even to look at God. Right? And the same is true for doubt. If it were impossible, if it were not possible for us to doubt, then there would be absolutely no need for us to have any faith in God. So God leads us into the wilderness to make us put our eyes on him. And you know, we might ask, well, what, what's the point of that? And it's that. I mean, we look at Psalm 23, right? David writes, and he says he's... Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For what? For why? Because you're cheering me on from a distance? No, it's so that I know that you, God, are with me there. That's what he says, with me. So he puts you there in the wilderness so that you see that he is leading you through it. He puts you through the test to refine your faith, right? 
So we're going to look at Israel walking through the wilderness, right? Israel and Moses walking through it. And before we start with that, we need to clear something up because I think it's commonly believed that Israel, the only reason that Israel has to walk through the wilderness is because they disobeyed God, right? Because they did not have the faith required in God to enter into the promised land. But, and that's true, right? They get to the promised land, they send the spies in, and they come back and they're like, oh, these people, we cannot possibly do it, right? What has God said? I'm going to give you this land, right? So they go back into the wilderness. But we forget that they spent over a year already walking in the wilderness with God, right? They went through the wilderness the first go-around to get to the promised land, right? So all that to say, God led them into the wilderness because that's where he wanted them to go, right? So it's not a curse. It's not a result of faithlessness. It's not a result of disobedience. It's simply where God takes them. Right? And God takes us all there, and it's not a curse. It's not because we've been bad and we deserve a time out. No, it's because God wants to strengthen and temper our faith. Right? So we see some specific ways in how God does this for Israel. In Exodus chapter 16, God provides manna from heaven for them. Right, So God delivers Israel from Egypt. Um, they cross over the sea, cross through the sea. He parts it. He brings them into the wilderness. And if you know the story after that, right, Israel, they don't do good in the the wilderness. They flounder, right? They do not function well. They complain. They grumble. They doubt. They go without water. They go without food. But God always provides for them, right? He always provides for them. And one way in which God provides for them in Exodus 16 is he provides manna, right, bread from heaven for them to eat. And the people before this, they, com- they, go, to, they go to Moses, they, co- they complain, and they say this, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. Right? So they've said it would be better for us if we died fat and happy in Egypt than starving in the wilderness. So despite the attitude of the people and their grumbling, God hears them. He hears their cry, and so God promises to provide. He provides quail in the evening, he provides them meat, and he provides bread, manna, in the morning, right? And he does, he does the manna for six days, right? On the seventh day, he doesn't provide any. Why? Because it's the Sabbath. On the sixth day, they get, gather a double portion so that they have a day's portion on the seventh day when you do no work. So... What do the people do? First day rolls around, bread on the ground. Uh, I'm going to get as much as I possibly can, right? More than enough, right? Why would they do that, right? And they, they do that, right? And then what happens to the bread the next day? It's inedible, right? Yeah, it's got worms in it. It's inedible, right? So why would they do that? I think it's because they could not stand being helpless, They could not stand being helpless. They did not have enough faith in God to trust God for even one day, right? They saw an opportunity to not be helpless tomorrow, and they took it, right? To not, why would I depend on God for tomorrow if I can take care of myself for today, for tomorrow, right? That was their thinking. And we are one and the same with Israel in this regard, right? One of the reasons God puts us in the wilderness is so that we can see our need for him, so that we will 
recognize that we are helpless, right? And one, you know, in, in the U.S., right, in, in just Western civilization in general, you know, we try everything imaginable to keep ourselves from feeling helpless, from actually physically being helpless, right? And that's not all bad, right? But we are told, you know, from a young age that be, helplessness is, is weakness, right? Is weakness itself. And that is true, but whenever we're faced with the reality of the situation, the truth is we are weak and helpless people, right? We cannot do a lot of things for ourselves. Selves. There is a lot that God has to do for us, right? And we are often in denial about that truth, right? And one of the ways that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we aren't helpless is by thinking that we control everything, that we control more than we actually do, right? And just like Israel thought that they could control their tomorrow by getting a double portion, we do the same thing. We think we have control over things that we do not. I would say no matter how hard of a grip that you think that you have on your life, there are things that are simply out of your control that render you helpless at the end of the day. As soon as you got into your car this morning, drove here, you put your life out of control, right? You surrendered control of your life into the hands of each and every person that you encountered on the road here today. And that's something that most everybody in this room does at least more than once a day, right? So there is a lot in life that we do not control, and the point of sending us into the wilderness is so that we know that we are helpless, that we do not control. So then what happens in the wilderness? In the wilderness, whenever we realize our helplessness, that becomes a way for God to show his strength. No matter how hard Israel tried to conjure up meat and bread for themselves, they could not do it. God had to provide it. They were helpless whenever it came to that, but God was strong. So God sends you into the wilderness to remove the veil of the illusion of control, right, and realize that you need him, right? And I think, I think that if we fully comprehended how much we needed God, how helpless we truly were, how little we control, there would not be a second of the day that we did not thank God or cry out to God. And this, realizing that we were helpless, actually brings us to the next thing, right? So in the wilderness, God teaches us to pray. We learn how to pray. Once Israel crosses the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, they go without water in Exodus chapter 15, right? The water that they find there is bitter, it's undrinkable, and they complain to Moses. And they say, oh, Moses, what are we going to do? He cries out to God, right? That's what Moses does, right? Helplessness, Moses cries out to God. He prays, right? And God shows him a log. He tosses it in the bitter water, and it's made sweet. It's made drinkable, right? So that, look at this. The clear need... The clear helplessness gave way to prayer, right? And here's what God does in the wilderness. He shows you your helplessness. Why? So that you will depend on him, so that you will learn how to pray. So the wilderness awakens us to prayer. If you see your need, then you have a reason to cry out to God in prayer. 
Some of you uh, may remember Damar Hamlin, right? Whenever just spontaneously, right, he dropped dead on the field after a play, right? And praise God, he's still with us that he came back from that. God sent him back to us. But a cra- in that moment, a crazy phenomenon happened, right? What? People who hardly ever pray are people who don't even believe in God prayed. Why? Because they recognized their helplessness to do anything about the situation and realized that God could intervene, right? These are people that hardly ever pray that don't even believe in God, right? You know, a second of suffering and doubt will make you believe in God really quick. <clears throat> so some things that I've learned about prayer, right, in this is that God cares about the details of your life, right? So I'll share with you a story. Many of you know Curtis shared it with you, but uh, my wife, Michaela, and I will celebrate one year on May 28th this year. So she hasn't left me. And I've been, even though I've been a wilderness to her. Um, but most of you, you know, you, you're familiar with the excitement of, of, of a new marriage, right? Of the first time for everything, right? I remember we, we would fantasize, you know, whenever we were engaged, like all the things that we get to do for the first time together, right? Or all of the things that we just get to do together, right? All the holidays, the vacations, you know, all of it. But with the coming of the first things together comes lament of the things that have been, right? So no more Christmases with the family, no more Thanksgiving with the family, no more family vacations, no more hanging it with the siblings on the weekends. These were things that we were both lamenting. And Easter came around earlier this year, and we had planned to go down to my parents for for, uh, Easter lunch, right? So we go to church here. Um, and Michaela tells me, you know, she's, she's been, she had been kind of sad. So I recognized, I was like, Hey, like what's, what's going on? Like Easter, we're supposed to be happy. Um, but I asked her and she said, well, you know, I'm really, really sad. I won't get to spend Easter with my family and, uh, and I won't get to eat my mom's delicious coconut cake. Right. She made it every year. Uh, so I, I, I try my best to console her to say, you know, it's, it's going to be okay uh, and instill some confidence in her. But, you know, th- th- this event came in the middle of a time whenever, you know, Michaela is dealing with, you know, a f- new everything, right? New job, new church, new community, you know, new everything, new area, right? So there's a lot of lament. There's a lot of grief going on here. So I, I, you know, I recognize, you know, my inability to really truly provide consolation for us. So I cry out to God, just a silent, silent prayer on our way to church uh, Easter Sunday. Say, God, you have got to, to comfort her. You've got to do something because I, I, I can't, I can't do it. Um, so we go to church. Later, we go down to my parents' house. Uh, and sure enough, what's there? My grandmother, Mom Opal, has made almost to the ingredient, the exact same coconut cake that her mom makes makes every year. So God works in the wilderness, right? Whenever you cry out to him, look, even if it's like, that's a small example, there are bigger things that we could talk about, right? That is just a small example of how God, right, knows what the soul longs for to keep enduring, right? 
So he's close to us in the wilderness, right? And whenever you recognize your helplessness, you cry out to God, that actually then gives way to witnessing the glory of God. So in the wilderness, God reveals his glory, right? He, shows his, he showed his power to Israel in many different ways, his power and glory, right? So in, in Scripture, often the glory of the Lord is associated with his animating presence, right? However it takes form or shape. For Israel, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day. He led them by a pillar of fire by night, right? Whenever he descends on Mount Sinai to give them the law, he's cloaked in a thick darkness, it says in Exodus 20, verse 21. All right, so Moses, we know, we learn in Exodus chapter 33 that he gets a special privilege to witness the glory of God, right? And this is what he says in, in Exodus 33, starting in verse in verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make, God said this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and, you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll be mercy, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by. I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Right? So Moses, he gets to see, you know, or be near God's presence, right? Nearer than any man or human has been up until then, right? Up until b before Jesus comes and the Spirit indwells us. This was as close as anybody could ever get to God, right? And Moses gets that privilege. Why? Why does Moses get that privilege? I would submit to you that it's because he asked and it's because he desperately wanted the presence of God in his life. That's, that's the promise, right? Draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. And I've lived long enough, right, and you've probably heard this before, but you will only ever be as close to God as you want to be, right? The wilderness is God's invitation, right, to, to lay it down and to come to him and, and be in relationship with him, right? That's, that's the invitation in the wilderness. But you have to look for him. You have to, to see him. Right? If you do not see him, you will not find his presence. If you do not look for him, you will not find his presence. So the wilderness do, does one of two things, right? So it's, it either brings us closer to God or it brings us closer to ourself, right? In other words, you become closer to God or you become more selfish. You become farther away from him. Moses is drawn into God because he wants God's presence in his life. What happens with Israel? Well, they're at the bottom of the mountain worshiping a cow that they made, right? And God is literally visibly present on the mountain next to him, next to them, right? How could that be? They don't have any use for God. They don't have any need for God, right? So the Exodus story makes it clear Israel does not do well in the wilderness, right? Every possible circumstance that they were given to recognize their helplessness, to cry out to God, to see that he was their provider and see his glory, they chose to be bitter, to complain, and to grumble, right? 
And this actually gives way to the next thing, right? Is that the great enemy to seeing God and to seeing his glory and ultimately God himself is cynicism, right? So I'll give you a definition of cynicism, right? Cynicism is the illusion that you can see through the fluff of the world to the true reality of it. And this is what it does. It ultimately shields us from disappointment and it prevents us from doing anything, any action out of passion or joy, right? That's what cynicism does. You might say, Ben, that's a really specific definition. Well, it is. You're right. It's because you're talking to a recovering cynic. And I know, I know it because I've struggled with this, right? I, and I imagine that Israel dealt with this as well. Over and over again, Israel fails to trust God, right, in the wilderness to provide for the needs. They say, we're thirsty, right? God gives them water, right? He makes bitter water sweet. They say, we're hungry, and it would be better if we never left Egypt ever before, right? And what does God do? He gives them food. He gives them bread. And, he said, and they say again, we're thirsty, Moses, and Moses, by the way, you just let us out here to kill us, right? So that God can kill us. And he still gives them water from the rock at Meribah in Exodus chapter 17. So for what other reason do they doubt? They've been given every reason to believe in God, yet they refuse to trust. Why? They thought they saw through God. They thought they saw through God. And that might sound weird, but here's the culture that they were living in. In Egypt. in Egypt, they were immersed in a culture that was enamored with magic, right? That might sound weird, but that's what Egyptian culture was then, right? We could see that in the text, right? The Egyptian magicians, Pharaoh's sorcerers, through whatever demonic power that's masquerading as an Egyptian deity, they're able to turn their staffs into serpents. They're able to turn water into blood. They're able to conjure up frogs, right? So Israel, I would imagine that Israel, some of them, at least some of them, took that idea of culture with them into the wilderness. And whenever they saw God work, they saw, oh, I see through that. I see a natural cause for that, or it's some other deity working it, right? They thought that they saw through God. They explained it away, right? And for us today, substitute magic for science, and you've got a modern-day skeptic, right? To see through God, natural cause for anything. There are no miracles. And there are many Christians today that believe stuff like that, that believe that the mighty works of God that we read about in the, the Old and New Testament, right, and even works that we can see today, they're not a result of, of, of God's power, right? Or that at least they did not happen the way that the Bible describes them happening, right? And really, isn't that the, the lie that we've been told from the beginning, isn't it? That, you know, oh, you know, take from that tree. Did God really say not to eat from that tree, not to take that fruit, right? And then the doubt becomes, turns into cynicism, right? God, you don't want me to have that because you know what will happen if I do. I'll be, li- I'll be just like you, right? And you're holding out on me, and I see through it. I see who you really are, right? I imagine that was the thought of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> and if you, here's the truth of it. If you see through everything, you see nothing at all. And that includes God himself. And sometimes whenever, whenever I pray, right, and God answers a prayer, and I can see it, sometimes I'll be tempted to believe, well, 
would that have happened anyway? Have y'all ever thought that? You pray, God answers it, that would have happened anyway. Right? That is cynicism. Who are we to take into account all of the variables of the universe and say what would or would not happen? Right? How can we put our, ourselves in the place of God and say what's going to happen and what's not going to happen? Right? That's what prayer does. Right? If you see through prayer, then you don't have any need for it. Right? So for some of the, the Israelites that did not buy into culture... They, I'm sure that they had an expectation for what life was going to be like after God delivered them out of Egypt, right? I'm sure they had an expectation of what it was going to be like, right? Things were really hard. Things were, were bad in Egypt, and now God's come to deliver us, and whenever we get into the, into the wilderness and the promised land, it's going to be great. There's not going to be any problems. It's going to be me and God, and it's going to be wonderful, right? And then they get to the wilderness, and the bubble is burst by the hunger, the thirst, the suffering, the doubt, Right? And listen to, I want you to listen to, to this statement, right, that, that, that the people make. We've read it before, but listen and see if you can hear the cynicism, is it? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, for you have brought us out to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, right? You can hear the shattered optimism there. You can hear the unmet expectation, the disappointment, right? And we behave similarly in that. We often expect that we deserve better than what we get from God, right? We often expect better than how God deals with us in reality, right? And that makes us disappointed, right? It makes us cynical at God. And then all the reason, all the purpose in life turns to the dark side. And that is cynicism. And I can't help but think that there is actually a lot of truth in, in the doubt that Israel had. God, you've brought us out here to kill us. And I think absolutely, yes, he has. Because listen to this, when God takes you into the wilderness it's often because there's something in you that needs to die, right? And he leads us there to make us see it so that we confess it and that we then kill it, right? We're all dealing with sin and brokenness, right, that God is sanctifying us in. He leads us into the wilderness so that we can see it and confess it and then kill it and leave it behind and come out on the other side closer with him and a greater dependence on, on who he is. <clears throat> So God sends us into the wilderness to sanctify us, ultimately getting us ready to dwell with him for eternity. Right? So God sends you into the wilderness to make you ready to spend eternity with him. All right, so let's move towards the end of Exodus. Right? Track through the story of Israel. Right? They go to Sinai. They get the law. They rebel against God. Golden calf incident. They pay the price for that. God renews the covenant, they build the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord finally descends into the, tabernacle, into the tabernacle, fills it, and God dwells with his people. He dwells in the midst of his people. Ultimately, know that this is a picture of the gospel, right, that's to come in Jesus. Jesus is our true deliverer. He is the one who delivers us, not just from a physical land of oppression, but from the spiritual powers of sin and death. 
He delivers us from that. And if we believe in him, right, a sanctifying relationship begins. That becomes a reality for us. And it's mediated not by a law in which we have to behave correctly, but by the Holy Spirit. And this makes us ready to live with him eternally in a new heaven and a new earth, right? But in the meantime, where are we at? We're walking in the wilderness because it's in the wilderness where we learn faith, where we learn trust, where we learn obedience, and where we learn to hope, a hope that surpasses the circumstances that you're in. And we could go on and on with that. All right, so you see that God calls you into the wilderness to prepare you to be joined with him fully and eternally. All right, so life is filled with God putting you through the wilderness. For why? To bring you to the promised land. That's what he does. Israel had to, that, that, that was the route to the promised land was through the wilderness. It's the route for us to the promised land, to eternal glory. The way is through the wilderness. Let me tell you this. God, if you are still alive, then God is not done leading you through the wilderness. <laughs> and so, last reason, we'll close with this one. The last reason that God sends you into the wilderness is so that you can walk with another through their wilderness. So God sent Moses into the wilderness before Israel even went there. Right? He's on his flight from Egypt to, to the land of Midian. He's walking through the wilderness. He's experiencing all the hunger, all the thirst, all the doubt, all the skepticism that Israel experienced on their journey there. Right? For why? So that Moses could minister and testify about God's faithfulness from a place of shared experience. Right? So that he could say, I've been where you're at. I know your doubts. I know your hurt. I know what you're going through. I know your grumbling. I know your complaints. But I can tell you this. I can't make that easier, but I can tell you this, that God is faithful, and if you trust him, if you lean on him, he's going to lead you through. So, man, who do you know that needs to hear something like that? In almost every difficult circumstance that, that I have been, been through, God has placed, raised somebody up to walk with me through that, right? And it's not because, you know, it's only because that that person, that man, whoever it was, was faithful because they took responsibility, because they listened to God. So, man, who are you going to walk with? Who are you going to walk with? We all go through wilderness, through the wilderness. We all go through the junk of life. We all go through suffering, some longer than others for different periods of time. But how has God used that in your life to make you depend on him, to strengthen your faith, to make you see his presence in his life? And how can you leverage that to walk with another through their wilderness? Thank you.